Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Pro Basketball Talk podcast here at NBC Sports. And like all things NBC, this is an Olympic-themed podcast. We're going to talk about the uh, 2016 team. It's US, the USA's team's chances. Who else might medal? But I think more interestingly, we're going to start with, because frankly, more interestingly, because we're just going to wipe the mat and the USA will win the gold, and it's really about who comes in second. I kind of want to talk about how USA basketball got here and the history of USA Basketball, and kind of how it turned itself around after some rough years 12 years ago. And joining me to talk about this are two guys that wrote this fantastic piece on the death and rebirth of USA Basketball on NBCOlympics.com. It is Bill Leopold and Ben Teitelbaum. Thank you guys for joining me. Thanks for having us, Kirk. Really appreciate it. Uh, Talk a little bit about the process here. You guys, like, this is an oral history. This isn't just you know, your opinion and some, and some points, you guys, you guys put in a lot of work and a lot of research to look back at starting in with the 2000 Olympics in Atlanta through the 2004 games in Atlanta, uh, Athens and afterwards and, and kind of what went wrong with USA basketball and what needed to go right. Talk about the process. So we started by sitting down and making a list of anybody and everybody connected to USA basketball in that time frame. It was obviously an extensive list, and we knew that there was no way we'd get them all to talk. But we sort of bulleted exactly how many people of different types we would need to make this story viable. How many players from that 2004 team? How many coaches? What type of executives we would need? And then we just started emailing and calling. And we didn't know, I'd say, for the first six weeks we were reporting the story, whether it was even viable, whether people would want to talk to us, because it is the black eye on the history of USA basketball. And we weren't sure if people would be open, candid, or have their own revisionist histories about it. And we started to get some really solid, positive responses. Uh, Bill had an early interview with Carmelo Anthony. We had a couple of early conversations with some international players and some Team USA executives that made us believe, you know what, this is a story really worth telling. And then over time, we got some more players, some more of the big names to come along board. Uh, And once they got on, we knew it was a real story that was viable. Yeah, and you've got some guys, I mean, yes, you got Carmelo Anthony and some of the players, but... uh, some guys who provided real insight in there, like Russ Granick, who people kind of forget, uh, was, you know, 
David Stern's right-hand man for a long time, but also was very involved with USA Basketball and, and was really insightful in this piece. Yeah, honestly, Russ wasn't exactly on our radar when we first started this piece, but when I talked to uh, David Stern a couple months ago, he mentioned Russ, and then when we talked to some of the USA Basketball folks, they honestly couldn't have spoken any more highly of Russ. He clearly is kind of a forefather of that whole organization. He was there since 1990. He was with David in the meetings when they decided that they were going to bring in the NBA players. And he just called me. I sent him an email through his um, his firm that he's working with now. He's working for, with a law firm. And he just called me back randomly out of the blue, didn't respond to the email. And I said, oh, we'd love to chat with you. He said, now's a great time. I got 10 minutes. 10 minutes turned into a 45-minute conversation. And that was when we, we had some gold. He gave us some incredible things, stuff that we didn't even end up publishing just because it didn't fit the exact narrative that we were able to tell. Um, nothing that was groundbreaking, but just the insight that he had on the entire process, it was just marvelous. And I think what's great about this piece is it goes back to 2000, where the U.S. does win gold in Atlanta, but it's it, the shakiness with, the, with what was going on with USA Basketball started then, and part of it was the rest of the world was getting better. But part of it was that the structure of USA Basketball was not nearly as solid as it is right now. That's right. And we heard that from multiple sources, players and executives. To piggyback on what Bill was saying a little bit, it was so insightful to talk to some of the, the executives of USA Basketball who don't necessarily have an image to uphold. Mm -hmm. and are a little bit more free with their time. And they were the ones who really went into the fact that, hey, we didn't even realize there was a problem because of how good we were in the 90s. And there really needed to be a wake-up call. When you're destroying the world, it can be hard to have the foresight to see, you know what, maybe things won't continue down this road. And they were very candid for me and Probably my most interesting uh, interview is with Stu Jackson, mm -hmm. who is with the chair of the USA Men's Basketball Select Committee. So sort of the guy in charge of picking the players for 2004. And I think history has given him a little bit of heat for what's gone on. That's at least how I remembered it. And for him to be able to acknowledge the mistakes that were made and just say the system wasn't what it needed to be, uh, that was really fascinating. And Jim Tooley, just the CEO of USA Basketball, he just kept emphasizing, you know, sometimes you've got to take one step back to take two steps forward. And that was how they looked at that 2004 tournament, which, you know, that was his first time as CEO being in the Olympics, having the USA team in the Olympics. And for him to have that nuanced approach and say, you know what, maybe this isn't going the way we wanted it, and just reform the entire organization when he's only three years into the job, I thought was pretty good insight by him. Yeah. And it's not just, by the way, what you get into in this, yeah, they, they, they win the gold in 2000, but they look vulnerable. And, and other countries, which is great, you get a great job of getting, you know, Alberto and these international players, Nocioni and stuff, who said, look, we watched them and we're like, we can get them. Like, they're beatable. Um, and Argentina by 2004, frankly, was the best team in the world. But um, they, you get into the 2002 World Championships, which, you know, people kind of overlook and forget sometimes. It was they came in sixth. Like, not even, not even close to the top. Uh, the slippage had started already, and part of that was that players. But it was, it was that when a you know when players back out now, there seems to be a depth of talent that pool that wasn't there then. 
Yeah, they didn't have that select team. We have the younger team right now with the people like you have Oladipo, you've got uh, CJ McCollum, you've got all sorts of people that are already involved with USA basketball. You have the U16s, U17s, U18s, and that's, I think, part of the reason why the Rio games are kind of interesting. It really puts that entire system to a test. They have 10 new players on that team. Right. In, in 2004, that was their biggest problem. They were like, we had absolutely no continuity. We don't know what we're going to do here because these guys have never played together before, but we've this year the United States has a ton of players who have been involved with the system, have played with these coaches, have played with some of the players on the team, and that really has gone a long way to be able to help keep the U.S. up by the top. And if we take a step back from the system and just think about what it means to represent the U.S., one thing that comes out in our reporting and in the piece is that there wasn't a pride associated no. with representing the U.S. in basketball come 2000, 2004. People pay lip service to it, but the dream team was all about bringing the U.S. back to the top the first time the pros could play in, in Olympic basketball and showing the world that we were the best. Eight years later, it was just assumed, yeah, the U.S. is the best in basketball. People want to get their NBA paychecks and focus on winning the NBA championship. It's nice to play for Team USA, but it's not the same thing it was back in 92 with the dream team. And then once we lost in 2002, 2004, then it became, whoa, we need to to have a look, a hard look at the the pride with which we approach the Olympics, what it means to have a culture that represents Team USA. And that's one thing that Colangelo and Coach K brought in, was that culture of we don't just go there expecting to win, and we don't just go there expecting uh, to play basketball. We go there knowing we are representing the U.S. for millions of people out there. Right, and, you know, I put in a, a, a short bit. I, I stole a piece out of, uh, or a quote out of a post that will be up tomorrow. Uh, for, for, for you listening, that will be on Thursday morning uh, on NBC's Pro Basketball Talk and, and around the site, uh, where I had a one-on-one with Kyrie Irving, and I talked with him, and he talked about that. And now he's obviously, we were discussing his relationship with Coach Krzyzewski, which goes way back. But he had the same thing, which is like, it was an honor before, but now you come up through the system. You know, he played on the U-17s before he went to Duke. He played on the select team, and, you know, he played in the World Championships. Now, he's a guy who was going to come back this year because of Krzyzewski and other reasons. But the system was in place. What What I'd forgotten a little bit about 2004 when you talked about it was not just so many guys backed out. But so many guys backed out because of terrorism, which I kind of forgotten. Like, everybody was really concerned. It was the first Olympics after 9-11, and there was a real concern about how, whether Greece had its act together, security-wise. And so a lot of guys kind of backed out for that reason. And the team they put together was literally just thrown together and with, like, little thought of, hey, who might Larry Brown actually want to coach? Yeah, and apparently it wasn't the guys on the team from everything <laughs> that we heard from players. Um, even we have that quote from Richard Jefferson saying that there were nine guys that backed out in 2002, or sorry, after the 2002 tournament, just because they didn't like playing for Larry. He's trying to tell Jason Kidd how to run a fast break. I'm pretty sure I could coach Jason Kidd, and I wouldn't say anything about him having to run a fast break because we know he knows how to do that. It's uh, very interesting to see the dynamic that these players – are kind of, I mean, maybe it's just in hindsight that they're willing to put it on a single scapegoat, but 
it was, we expected everyone to kind of band together. You know, we are all in this together. We don't want to put the blame on anyone in particular. And I could understand someone like Marbury going after Larry just because we all know their history with it. But to hear that someone like Richard Jefferson, who's just a well-respected person around the league, to go in on Larry relatively unprompted by us was uh, pretty remarkable. And yes, the concern of terrorism was absolutely there. Everyone thought the Greece Olympics were going to be a mess. But it made us wonder, so was that fully the reason that these guys dropped out or did it end up being a convenient excuse that you know what hey this is like let's put it on terrorism because it's there and people can't blame us for it but really we don't want to play for larry brown yeah one thing i think that is worth mentioning and we heard this from a few different people we heard it from richard jefferson uh we heard it from chris sheridan the former espn journalist who covered the team for over a decade and then from a couple usa basketball executives the people that decided, the players that decided to still go, deserve some measure of acknowledgement and, yeah. and respect. Absolutely. What, what Richard Jefferson said was, there were a million reasons I could have backed out, but you know what? I wanted to live up to my commitment. I wanted to represent my country. And that, that wasn't seen among all of the, the players. And the executives wanted to put out the story that, you know what? It was hard to put the team together. Our system was poor in putting the team together. And the guys didn't gel. Everyone admitted the guys didn't gel. But, you know, for those that did decide to go in the face of whatever it was, security concerns, personal concerns, they shouldn't be completely standard, slandered, and they deserve at least a measure of our acknowledgement for, you know, picking up the mantle and going. And, and can we just admit that despite coming in uh, with the silver in, in – and our, look – Argentina was really good that year. People kind of forget that's the peak of their golden generation with Manu Ginobili, with Nocioni, with Carlos Delfino, with with, with a bunch of NBA talent, uh, Luis Scola, Scola I'm kind of overlooking, really good players who had played together since they were like 15 and played on a string in a way that, that a cobbled-together U.S. team looked bad against. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from them. That was a really good team that won the gold. If you look at her piece, you'll see we have some highlights in there, especially that Argentina game. You can just see multiple really high-level NBA-caliber players. And 2004 was, I think, the first Olympics where you saw many teams have many guys that would go on to have serious NBA careers. Yes, the 90s started to see a little bit of a flow of talent from Europe to America, there's, you know, Arvidas Sabonis and Serenis Marshallonis that left Shrimp, a few more, but it wasn't until the mid-2000s that it became a regular occurrence for every NBA team to both look for talent elsewhere and find talent elsewhere. And we asked almost everyone we spoke to whether 2004 was some sort of tipping point or inflection point for international guys proving they could play in the NBA. And most of them say, not exactly, that it was just an illustration of what was already happening rather than a tipping point itself. But it is a nice, you know, we like to put things in narratives in our heads. It is a nice narrative plot point to say, before 2004, you look at the numbers of international guys in the NBA. They aren't great, and there aren't many stars. You look at the guys who played in 2004. Pau Gasol led the tournament in scoring, and he was just getting ready to really kick off his perennial all-star career with the NBA. Ginobili was young, had won one title, but wasn't the best sixth 
man ever that we know him as today. The list goes on of guys, Carlos Arroyo, Jose Calderon, who were young in those Olympics, uh, Sarunis Yasakevichis, yeah. Lithuania's star, who absolutely killed the U.S. Uh, hitting a handful of threes. That tournament got him a deal with yeah. the Pacers. Before that, he was just a guy, just a known quantity in Europe. So that tournament saw so much international talent, and uh, it really has translated to the NBA. Yeah, and it moved on. They get to do, they, you know, the U.S. loses in 2004, and that's kind of when they have the, the come-to-Jesus type of meetings that lead to Jerry Colangelo and Mike Krzyzewski kind of taking over the program and putting in the culture that we talk about now. Yeah, they had a come-to-Jerry moment, if you will. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was so bad. But uh, So the coolest thing I found about Jerry taking over is how obviously all of the executives involved, from the NCAA guys that are involved with USA Basketball to the pro guys, they all respected Jerry. They all knew Jerry. They had relationships with him. Um, but everyone said the way he took over, he didn't come in and act holier than thou. He didn't say, you know what, I know what you guys all did wrong. He went in and he asked questions. And that was just illustrated by the fact that he called the giant meeting of all of the USA coaches and all of the former, as many former players as he could get in Chicago, where he had the likes of Jerry West and Jordan and Dean Smith and Chris Mullen. The list just goes on and on. And just to be a fly on the wall of that meeting would be absolutely amazing. That just can't even believe it. And then to have Dean Smith in that meeting say, you know, the only guy who can do this as a college coach is absolutely Coach K after everything we know about the UNC-Duke rivalry. When I first heard that story, I was just blown away. I was like, oh, man, Dean Smith said that? It really, uh, that was the kind of the point for me that was like, all right, we all knew Coach K was good. We all knew that he was respected. But to have his biggest rival theoretically endorse him in front of all of these other guys, that was huge for me. And a quote that sticks out to me, we spoke at length with Rudy Tomjanovich, you know, NBA champion winning coach with the Houston Rockets, who then coached the 2000 U.S. gold medal winning team. And he straight up said, Jerry Colangelo and Coach K are American heroes. And I guess that was the simplest summation of what their presence in USA basketball meant to the organization, to basketball within this country, and to the prospects of basketball, of USA basketball on the world stage. But for Rudy Tomjanovich, one of the more most respected guys in NBA circles to straight up say they're American heroes. That 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 was amazing. Yeah, it, it really is. And I think what you get with Colangelo to a degree, but particularly Coach K and frankly with Popovich kind of taking over afterwards, you have to have the guy who rises above the petty politics that can get this can get dragged into with, you know, Nike's influence and agents leaning on people and, and all the you know the NCAA wants a piece, and the NBA wants a piece, and there's a lot of strong personalities in the room, and you've got to have a some people in charge who can be above that, and there aren't many. And I think Coach K is is frankly just one of a handful of guys who could do that. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and I think the same goes for what you said about Popovich. From what the stories that we were told was that he kind of kept that whole 2014 together. He's the reason that they were able to come back together and win bronze in 2004, the fact that we even got a medal at all. And I think that's just a testament to how well he handles people and he's able yeah. to kind of, after, so we heard a story that after the Lithuania game that they lose, the second loss that they had in the tournament, I think equaling the total 
total losses U.S. had in all of the Olympics up until or from 1936 on. Um, he said, you know what, guys, that was our best game of the tournament. We lost, but we are on the right track. And I know that that's kind of just coach speak, like let's keep the team together. But when it comes from someone that's as well-respected as Greg Popovich, people listen. And I think the U.S. is just in such good hands going forward. When you're passing the torch from Coach K, one of the greatest college coaches of all time, to Greg Popovich, one of the greatest bas- uh, basketball coaches in general, but NBA coaches of all time, it's going to be a pretty seamless transition, I think. Yeah. And in my mind, that what Bill just said sort of brings me back to Larry Brown, who is such a fascinating figure in all of this. Just so everyone listening out there knows, we for months tried everything possible to get in touch with Coach Brown. At various times, we had assurances from SMU, his former employer, that he was ready to talk. His agency uh, that represents him said, yes, we're right around the corner from getting Coach Brown on the phone, and ultimately nothing surfaced, and we were not able to talk to Larry Brown. But he's the only coach who's won an NCAA title and an NBA title, and yet he's one of the most divisive coaches in basketball history, I'd say, as far as relationships with different players and management and so finding out although not from him but from the executives David Stern was not shy about his criticism of Larry Brown same thing with Richard Jefferson obviously Stephon Marbury was that's not a surprise to anybody Uh, but it's really interesting that someone who's had so much success remains such a polarizing figure who can't seem to form lasting relationships at least on the positive side of things yeah Do you guys see this 2016 Olympics where, look, the concerns are not terrorism and it's different, but a lot of guys did back out of these Olympics for a variety of reasons. But, you know, frankly, we could form a better team of guys who aren't going than the guys who are there. Is this a test of what Colangelo and and Coach K built? Yeah, I think this is pretty much the culmination of everything that's happened over the last 11 years since, since Colangelo took over was that this is the test for whether or not they can have 10 people drop out and still come in and have a cohesive unit that's able to play together. And it, maybe they'll have some bumps and bruises along the way. And they really are just putting to the test whether or not these U-17, U-18 select teams, you talked about Kyrie Irving being having been with USA Basketball for years at this point, even though this is only his first Olympics. This is really, this is it for them. It's it's Coach K's last Olympics, and it's funny enough going to be his biggest challenge, and it could be the crowning achievement. It could be the one that means the most to him because of the fact that this is what they've worked for for more than a decade. Gentlemen, look, first off, everybody listening to this, go, go you, look, pull out your mobile device. You can pause this for a minute before we get to Dan Feldman and start talking about these Olympics. Uh and who's going to get the silver, frankly. Uh, <laughs> uh, go read the story by these gentlemen, uh, Ben and Bill, at NBCOlympics.com. It's a it's a long, really well done oral history, and I hope you guys uh, I hope you guys enjoy. We're getting to work the Olympics on Olympics.com side. I, it's a tad busy for you guys the next few weeks, I imagine. Just slightly, you know, but we're happy to take the time out and talk to you. It's really been a pleasure to uh, report this story, and as much as we can talk about it, it's really just been a great, a great experience. All right.
right, now we're going to turn our attention to these 2016 games to literature. Uh, opening ceremonies are Friday night, which you, can, of course, can watch here on NBC. Uh, well, you can stream it on NBCOlympics.com. Watch it on your local NBC affiliate. And the uh, Olympic basketball tournament tips off on Saturday with the USA taking on China in its first game. And with me here to break down all things Olympics, well, not all things Olympics, we're not going to get into beach volleyball today, but Dan, I, I, even though you are an expert in that, we'll kind of stick to the basketball if that's all right. Can we bring up boxing real quick? Yeah, sure. Why not? Every Everybody watch Clarissa Shields, Flint, Michigan. She's going to win another gold. Uh, you're, you're pimping. And also watch basketball. Yeah, you're pimping the Flint basketball, the, uh, your hometown. I'll... I'll if I'm going to do that, by the way, then I would be men's water polo, where Tony Azevedo and actually a number of the uh, men's water polo players came out of Long Beach. I think we've got a track person as well. But a great story on, uh, I will pimp this on ESPN, about the Wilson High School, which is, I don't know, about four, three, two, three miles from my house, uh, which has now had a person in every Olympics for, I think it's the last 15. Like, they've had oh, wow. one athlete in it. It's been kind of a crazy run. So, anyway... We're going to talk about basketball, which, frankly, your your boxer may be far more interesting than the ultimate outcome of the of the basketball tournament. The U.S. is a is a to, to put it, Dan, a heavy favorite would be kind of understating it. Uh, yeah, I think you put it well about the seventy three nine Warriors versus the West Coast Conference champion. That's <laughs> yeah. about right. Yeah, there the, the just isn't the depth of talent. Well, first off. I think it's a credit, and you know, we talked about this before in the first part of this podcast. We were talking uh, with the guys from NBC Olympics about the culture they built. It would have been devastating, like in 2004 when you had 10 players back out, to have this happen this year if they had not built the culture of guys who'd played within the system, come up through the system, so that you can have this kind of guys back out and this heavy turnover, and you've still got deep talent pool of NBA players who know how to play together, who have done stuff together, and it's, it's not as bad as just kind of randomly throwing guys together with a new coach and a new system. So the U.S. isn't as bad, but the other part of that is, like, Spain got old. Argentina is old. Like, it's just players that have come up, it's kind of interesting that the players that have come up in Spain behind that kind of golden generation aren't, I mean, there's good players, but it hasn't been quite the same. We, we had just all sort of expected that the rise of basketball in the rest of the world, it would just be sort of a steady course upward. And then once they were really contending and sometimes beating the U.S., we just sort of figured, hey, they'll keep going. And I sort of think it's just that's not how these things work, that there are ups and downs. Yeah. And maybe the general trend is upward, uh, but the the there's still going to be some peaks and valleys along the way. If, if they don't pick back up, though, sort of soon, then maybe we'd have to revisit it and say there's more to it. Exactly. So, uh, look, the U.S. with... A starting five that will have Kyrie Irving, Clay Thompson at the two. Uh, I guess Kevin Durant at the three, Carmelo at the four. You can switch that however you want it. They're kind of the wings. And DeMarcus at the five uh, is the likely starting five with just, you know, Kyrie, you know, Kyle Lowry, DeMar DeRozan. DeMar DeRozan, the highlight machine through the first five exhibition games. Uh, DeAndre Jordan, who's looked great. And just all these guys coming in off the bench. You know, Draymond Green has been a mess offensively. But the defensive numbers, it, like they actually play really well when he's on there, just because of the defense. So nothing really goes wrong for this team, and I don't see, like I said, I just don't think there's some other good teams that you know France can roll out a nice starting five, and then it kind of drops off heavily. Yeah, I mean it's 
that's what really sets Team USA apart. Although, I don't know. I mean, even in top-end talent, Team USA is so much better than everybody else. I guess, really, that's the only, like, competition yeah. here. Is Team USA's top-end talent a greater advantage, or is their depth a greater advantage? Exactly. Yeah, the other countries don't have Kevin Durant and, and you know... Uh, Clay Thompson shooting really just there aren't consistent players like that in a lot of other parts of the world. Uh, let's talk about some of the other teams. Argentina, uh, this will be kind of the last run for their golden generation with with Manu Ginobili, Alberto um, Scola will be there, and the leading scores you know kind of in the run up were Scola and and Ginobili. They've got some nice young players, but that. The problem, I think, is just, again, those are older guys, and they just kind of lack the athleticism they're going to need to compete with the U.S. or, frankly, some of the other elite teams. Yeah, I'm with you. And when Argentina was at its best, Anderson Verajat was very big for them, just a, a defensive nuisance. And maybe he's more suited still to do that in international play, although how starkly he's declined in the NBA, because he could do it in the NBA for a while, too, and now his really only NBA-level skill is flopping. Yeah, I think either you know he's not on the team, so they're definitely not going to get him. Even if we were there, I'm not sure they'd get enough of Virgil of what they need. But he was somebody who just as creative and disciplined and in sync they were offensively, and that gave USA fits at their peak. Virgil made such a huge difference defensively, and I don't think they have anybody who can do that anymore. Yeah, um, there are two teams that will make it a little interesting if the USA plays. I don't think the games will be necessarily close, but they'll be slugfests, and they won't be pretty, and that's Serbia, which brings, you know, Nikola Jokic from Denver as well as some other big bodies in there and a good point guard uh, to the table, and then Lithuania, where they have Valanchunas, and they have the just-drafted uh, Sabonis kid out of uh, who's going to Oklahoma City but was out of Gonzaga. They have... A quality. Both of those teams have quality international point guards. Uh, again, they don't have the depth and quite the athleticism, especially on the wing, but they play pretty well as a unit, and they play that physical international style that's just tough to play against. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think Team USA playing them would be the most fun, but the talent is just so lacking, and I think you need a team that's better outside shooting to get hot. Like, that's going yeah. to be a big part of the recipe to beat Team USA. I don't think that's Serbia. Uh, but they can just be a nuisance. And if that, you know, and, and that can beat some lesser teams. That could make them competitive maybe beyond their talent, uh, but just not enough where they're yeah. a threat to the Americans. Yeah, and they do. And by the way, I don't want to leave it out there. They're bringing in Brogdon Bogdanovich, who is, was traded this draft night. Now his rights belong to the Kings, and in theory he'll come over someday. Uh, Teodosic is a you know a, again a quality international point guard, and then you go over to Lithuania, and they're lacking a couple of the bigger names, but the, they they have they again have a really good international point guard. So um, Teodosic, by the way, if you don't know, is the CSK Moscow point guard for people who, who don't necessarily follow in Europe. And, and look, he's taken them to EuroLeague, so they look they're going to be solid. They just kind of lack the depth. Um, but it's not always pretty when you play those teams, and guys like Valanciunas are, you know, he, the guy can score, and, and Jokic is kind of the same way. They're bruising, they can score, uh, they fit pretty well in the NBA, but they fit a little smoother internationally. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's This is all their comfort zones. And yeah. That's the thing that gives USA a, a little bit of trouble, because the style of play is their style, not, it's not the American style. Exactly. Um... 
another team. Look, the two teams I think most likely to give the. the, the if you were going to make me say who's going to get the two medals, the, the bronze and silver, it's going to go in some order. I think to Spain and France. I'm a little higher on France, but Spain certainly has played better. Uh, Spain is bringing. They do not have Marcus All, but they are bringing Pau. They are bringing Jose Calderon. They are all bringing Sergio Rodriguez. Um, they have Miritich. They have Rudy Fernandez. They have Juan Carlos Navarro. They have Ricky Rubio. They have uh, the just drafted Willie Hernan Gomez. I mean, they, these are they have a depth of NBA level players on that team, and they are a team that plays in, within their system. Yeah, I'm with you on the on the silver and bronze, and you know the order of them. I, I think that's the consensus too. I think you know we're in the majority on that. Uh, Fr- France is just I think a little deeper. Yeah, and just just better balance. Yeah, that's that they can do more things. And Spain is a is a little less balanced, and going to have to rely a little bit more on aging players. France's players are closer to their prime, I think. Exactly. Look, they are going to have to lean on France. When you're talking about France, I, I like the balance of that roster better. Look, Tony Parker's older, but as we've seen through the NBA playoffs and internationally, he can dial it up for a stretch, and he's still solid. But then you get you have Nicholas Batum out on the wing. You have Boris Diaw at the four as kind of a playmaker. You have uh, the Stifle Tower, Rudy Gobert, uh, which, by the way, talked to him at Summer League. He was very pumped about this, and, and he, again, is just a ginormous human being. I don't think you can really underestimate how big he is. Uh, he, you know, he'll be controlling the paint. Nando DiColo was the MVP of the qualifying tournament. They have some other, like, you know, NBA-level players and, and high-level, you know, international players on that team. But their roster, to me, I think what I like better about them is, like you said, they're younger and a little more towards their peak. But I think that they've got a real balance across that roster of a little bit of everything. Right. Where Spain, you know, you have uh, just multiple guys, you know, Willie Heron Gomez and Pau Gasol. Like, are they different enough where they can complement each other? Are Jose Calderon and uh, and Ricky Rubio different enough where they can complement each other. There's just a, a lot of overlap in skills, which, you know, it's not the worst thing. Like, this is there's a reason we think Spain's going to win a medal because of all that talent. But when you're comparing it with the other top teams, just some of that overlap, it becomes a little bit more of an issue. Exactly. I, I think that, I think, and I think some of their key guys, guys, you know, they're going to lean on Pau. He's not young anymore. I, I just think... And you do play in the group stages. You, you play a lot, and then it kind of spaces out when you get... For people who don't know, there are five teams in your group, so you play five games, um, and then of them, like, everybody, you know, move on to a, a knockout tournament where you have to... Then it is truly a one-and-done knockout tournament, and you do have to come focused every night. Coach K has talked about considering the group play almost an extension for the U.S. of, of the exhibition season in the sense that he just wants to keep getting better and getting better so that they're kind of peaking at the right time. It's really hard to read anything out of the USA's exhibition season. Yes, they played teams going to the Olympics, but China is one of the worst teams, and if they're not, Venezuela is. And that's, and then and, and Nigeria is near the... Nigeria has some talent, but it'd be, you know, Al-Faruq Amino and Festa are staying home for insurance reasons. So suddenly, a lot of their good talents, you know, now they're Ike Diagu's their best player. They're playing teams that are going to be at the bottom of this tournament, and they were blowing them out, but I don't know that we can read much into that. Yeah, I, I mean, other than that Team USA is clicking, everybody seems to be getting along, having fun together. Except like, Carmelo. <laughs> <laughs> ex- 
sticks up for Melo, and he even apologized. Exactly, he did so, apologize to Vanessa specifically. So yeah, that's true. Maybe his teammates are mad they didn't apologize to them. Maybe that's going to be the feud that rips Team USA apart. <laughs> Somehow, I doubt it. There does seem to be a good chemistry with these guys, and when you, I was in Vegas with them for the first part of training camp. The guys really savor getting to go at each other, getting to go at each other one on one and in in scrimmages and stuff, and you know. Look, I, I looked at DeAndre Jordan at one point, and I said, you like beating up on the skinny kids on this select team. And he just grinned and then, you know, g- grinned ear to ear, nodded, and then gave a very politically correct answer. But, you know, they, they kind of enjoy this. But they also, after the games, after the practice ends, they play some knockout, they play some one-on-one, they do some stuff where they kind of just go at each other. And he's like, you know, Kyrie Irving was telling me in the piece that's going to be coming out tomorrow, it's like, we don't get to do this. Like, we don't, you know, in the course of a season, I don't get to go one-on-one with Paul George or, or Jimmy Butler very often. I don't get to challenge myself that way. So it's really fun in this setting to, to push yourself in that kind of setting. Those guys love that. They do. And there are two ways to spin this. You could spin it as they're so focused on going against each other, and this is what it's about for them, and this is the that's the challenge they look forward to and enjoy. And so they get to this knockout stage, and it only takes one night of not being focused. Yeah. And, and that could be it. Or the other spin is, look, they're getting in their competitive groove. They're staying focused. They're they're in it to win at everything. They're ultra competitors. They're not going to slip up for a night. They'll be fine. I, I, so I kinda, know which is true. I tend to think it's the latter. Yeah, exactly. I was about to say, I tend to think it's the latter. I think... One of the advantages they have with the culture that they've built up under under Jerry Colangelo and, and Mike Krzyzewski is that there is a genuine, um, A, I'm playing for my country and it's bigger than me kind of thing and a pride in that that I don't know was there. You know, uh, certainly, you know, back in 2004, 2000, when, when before this thing was restructured, that, you know, now, now they want to do this and they do come together. And having Coach K, I only think, and that's why I think, Greg Popovich was the guy who had to take over for him as they've set up. You've got to have one of those coaches who can just, is above it all and can get these guys to come together in a way that, like, you know, maybe Brad Stevens can eventually, but he's not there yet. They're good coaches, you know. I don't know that Tom Thibodeau could do that. I don't know who the guy, there are only a handful of guys who can kind of rise above that fray, and Coach K is one of them. See, I not to take anything away from Coach K, who's obviously done a great job with Team USA, but I think sometimes he gets too much credit. I think the players deserve more yeah. for coming out above it themselves. And maybe this is the AAU culture that everybody gets worked up about. But I've seen this firsthand and how it's changed. Players are not as me first as they used to be, just no. generally. I would maybe be- it's because they're used to playing with other really good players since they were young. And, and you know they like to go to Kentucky and team up with everybody, and they go to the NBA and team up with everybody. But it, it's a different, it's a different mindset, and it's helped make Team USA more successful. I think. I think so. I, I I do agree that I think the players deserve credit for that too, and I think Coach K helped you know brings that. But I also think, look, the other thing Coach K has done and and made this fun, and this was the opposite of what Larry Brown did, as we discussed in the first part of this podcast, where he was trying to you know micromanage this team and and telling Jason Kidd how to run the fast break and that kind of stuff. Like, he's like, hey, you know what? We're going to play high-pressure defense. We're going to use our athleticism. We're going to have fun. And you talk to these guys, and they love playing this style. They, the same reason that guys like playing for D'Antoni in the in the NBA and, and, and guys who want to get up and down. 
basketball's just more fun when you're doing that than it is if you're, you know, running a very structured half-court offense at times. And they're like, hey, we just get to go out and play, kind of play this freewheeling system, and that makes it enjoyable for them. And they, in that kind of setting, guys are more willing to share the ball. And I, Amin Hassan has talked a lot about this, sort of the sneaky benefit of playing an up-tempo system. Everybody scores more points. It doesn't necessarily make you a better team, but player, you know, players don't really look at the advanced stats of, okay, well, how many points am I scoring per 100 possessions? It's, hey, I finished this game with 18 points instead of 12, and I feel a little better about that. And yeah. so especially on a team like this, it just helps to make everybody a little more happy. Exactly. And I think they are happy. I think they will be happy as they stand there on the gold medal stand with probably France and Spain on either side of them. I think if you're, by the way, I'll throw this out there. If you're looking for dark horses, Croatia kind of fits into the Lithuania, um, Serbia mode of, you know, physical Eastern European teams with some talent that maybe can pull it together. Um, and I think the Boomers in Australia have an interesting, I mean, They've got Matthew Delvadova. They've got, you know, Andrew Bogut in the paint. They've got, again, not as much talent as I think the teams above them, but they're sneaky good, and maybe they could sneak in. You know, stranger things have happened. Yeah, they're a solid roster, and I don't know if this matters, but they just, they never have to beat anybody to get there because because the way it's broken down, they're in, yeah. uh, was it Oceana is what yeah, they call exactly. it? Yeah, They've got to basically beat New Zealand every four years. Right, so... They haven't. They're not battle tested. Maybe that doesn't matter. I do like their talent. Who who would your pick for fourth be? Because I think it's wide open. Yeah, it's it's really hard. I, I I have them as I would have it as Serbia and then Argentina. Um, but I I really think I, I think Spain and France are kind of a clear two three. But it's not a it's not a huge gap to everybody else. And if you know Argentina the other night in a friendly, now it was Argentina's and Manu Ginobili's final game in Argentina, and he, he put on a show. But Argentina beat France. Like, Argentina is capable on, you know, when you get to the knockout stages, I think when you, that's why I'm saying a team like Australia has a chance. I think on a, in a one-game series, they could beat France. You know, in a one-game you know, knockout night, where I think it's far less likely they could do that against the U.S. So I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. Who's, who's, your, who's your team for fourth? For fourth, um, yeah. I'll put Serbia. Okay. I'm going to take Lithuania. Well, oh, actually, did I say Serbia? I, I, I was about to say I went to Lithuania. I'm, my bad. Okay. Okay. I'm going to take Lithuania, but I see, I, I sort of disagree. I sort of think there's a very clear top tier, which is Team USA, yeah, and then a very clear second tier, which is Spain and France, and then I, I do think there's a big drop to everybody else. Not that they couldn't top it, and I don't think it's as big as the gap between the France and, and Spain to get to USA, but I do think there's a pretty big gap. And then I think it's pretty wide open, like all the way down to Brazil. I think Brazil could make a run yeah. at home playing, you know. That's actually a, a really good point. Place. We're probably underestimating what Brazil will do on their, on the you know, you underestimate the home court matters in these things. The place will be packed and loud and sounding and like a soccer a stadium. Roster. Yeah. And they do have a solid roster. They do have, they, have, they do have some talent there. Um, in four years, we'll be talking about how good Canada is and if they're a threat to the U.S., but they did not make the cut this time. So um, we, we will not have to get into them. It is kind of a drop-off, but uh, thanks, Dan, for doing this. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, 
We may have one follow-up Olympics podcast if some interesting news breaks or anything happens, but uh, this may be it until the start of the season when Dan and myself and a host of other people from around the league come back with the PBT podcast and we start to, we start breaking down exactly how the Philadelphia 76ers are going to win the NBA title next year. Right, Dan? Uh, don't have me on for that one, please. <laughs> I, think, I, you know, I, I don't see what could go wrong. I think they're like a 70-win team. <laughs> so, but uh, we're going to have a lot of fun breaking it down and we'll get into all that as we head into next season but thanks everybody for listening and uh, hey enjoy the Olympics and be sure to watch what's our boxer's name? Clarissa Shields uh, one of the female boxers out of Flint actually that should be interesting I will be checking that out thanks everybody for uh, listening check us out by the way on Stitcher we are right at the we've got uh, if you want to check out a bunch of uh, Olympic style podcasts on the NBC, uh, you go to the iTunes page. There is actually an NBC Sports thing with podcast link right on the front of your iTunes podcast page now, where you can get uh, not just this, but a whole lot of the Olympic uh, Olympic podcast coverage. Uh, plus, hey, just subscribe while you're finding us on iTunes. We could use that. So, thanks a lot, everybody, for listening, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Want to make Mom's Day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat Mom to the good stuff from just $30. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939.